Hello and welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast. Today I'm joined by Richard Lorks, who is Head of Data and Analysis at the Race Disparity Unit and also Chief Statistician at the Cabinet Office. Thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. You're welcome, Ollie. Nice to be here. We're going to talk today about the work of the Race Disparity Unit and whether we can learn anything from the unit and the work that it's done. So can you please outline what the RDU is and also the Ethnicity Facts and Figures website, which is one of the main things the RDU has worked on? Sure. The RDU is the team within Cabinet Office that's primarily responsible for developing the website. So in 2016, the government announced a race disparity audit and the intention was to tackle burning injustices in society. A year later, in October 2017, we published the audit itself, a PDF report, but more importantly, we launched the website uh, at the time with 104 different items of data. Over the last couple of years, we've added 70 more data sets to that, and we've updated all of the data on the website. And more recently, we've started to publish summary reports on specific topics, for example, the public sector workforce, and about particular ethnic groups, beginning with the Black Caribbean group. And that report's had over 20,000 views so far. One thing which we have argued in the report that we've done is about the importance of mixing qualitative and quantitative research. And can you speak a bit about the sort of data that's on the website? Is it a mixture of both or is it mainly one type of data? It's quantitative. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard numbers. We are thinking over a period of time of introducing case studies mm-hmm. uh, rather more. Mm-hmm. For me, stories and case studies can help to bring data to life. They can be more accessible. They add a human interest angle and they relate directly to people's experience. So they complement quantitative data effectively. And can you speak a bit more about how qualitative evidence can be used in conjunction with quantitative and to complement quantitative data? Qualitative research like semi-structured interviews or focus groups, they can provide depth and and flexibility. They allow you to follow up issues raised rather than following a, a predetermined questionnaire. So they have that advantage over quantitative research methods like surveys. So if you want to collect statistical data using a sample survey but you don't have a clear understanding what the issues are, you might do qualitative work beforehand to get a handle on them and then design survey questions. Alternatively, you might see something interesting in the results of a sample survey and want to follow those up in more depth using qualitative methods. So they're they're complementary approaches. They can take place before or after each other or at the same time. Are you able to give an example of a situation in which using both qualitative and quantitative data has been effective in making a point or driving a point home about perhaps some of the relevant areas for the RDU? On the Ethnicity Facts and Figures website, we publish a lot of data about employment and unemployment and economic inactivity, and that shows gaps between different ethnic groups. And DWP has done some work over the last year or so, qualitative work, to essentially do case studies of particular groups. So looking, for example, at the the reasons for low activity rates amongst the Pakistani and Bangladeshi group, particularly women. So those two approaches complement each other. The hard data shows us the big gap, and the case studies allow policymakers to explore in more detail what the barriers to work might be. And do you think that there could be a potential future where the RDU does more with qualitative data? Is that something on the horizon? It is. It's part of our planning at the moment. We want to get a better understanding, for example, of 
the reasons people trust or don't trust particular frontline services mm-hmm. um, in the housing domain or in Job Centre Plus offices. We know there are, there are issues for some ethnic groups. We just don't fully understand them yet, so we need to explore that using case studies. How can the status of such work, qualitative research and case studies, be elevated? How can it become more influential and more part of the wider policy debate? By its very nature, qualitative research is often smaller in scale than quantitative research, and it's difficult to generalise from, which means it can be ignored. But quantitative data can only take us so far in our understanding about how people interact and affect each other, and in highlighting the complexity of interactions. And that reinforces the importance of qualitative research because it does allow you to get beneath the surface. For me, ideally, all research would have an element of qualitative and quantitative to provide the fullest picture possible for policymakers to be able to understand the problems affecting different groups and the impacts of different interventions. Just for the benefit of the listeners, so they can know a bit more about this website and what the point of it is and what the impact of it has been. And you said there's like 174 data items on there. What data is is actually on there? What are some of the big things which are on there and what's the kind of purpose of it? The rationale initially was to pull together data that already existed across government, but to, to put it in one place and to make it as accessible as possible. So rather than presenting it in complex and unwieldy spreadsheets, we put it into a straightforward way that a wide range of users could find helpful. And in that respect, it was at least initially a data transparency project kind of within the Open Data Initiative. It was all about getting data out there with the intention that once people could see the data, it would help inform policy making and it would help NGOs and lobby groups and third sector organisations to think, well, there's a problem in my area in this respect. We need to tackle this together. The data we've got are under a series of high-level headings. So there's one to do with crime and policing. There's data on housing, on the labour market, where people work and so on, and on health. And within each of those topics, we have 30, 40, 50 different data sets. So what are some of the more interesting findings or data items which are on the Facts and Figures website? I can give you a couple of examples, my favourite examples, if you like. One is around organ donation consent. So this is the proportion of people in different ethnic groups who consent to having their organs donated after the death. And there were wide variations between different ethnic groups there. We're not sure of the reasons, but it seems likely that at least partly it's to do with uh, different cultural and faith issues. And the second example is hourly earnings. And this is an example where the where the white British group is by no means the top of the distribution. Indian people and people from the Chinese group tend to earn more and people from the combined Pakistani and Bangladeshi group tend to earn much less. So that's a really interesting point because we have um, these categories, official statistical categories such as black and minority ethnic. And from what you've just said about earnings, it sounds like within these categories, there's often quite a lot of disparity. Is that fair to say? It is. um, BAME is used quite commonly as a term, but it's not a term that the Race Disparity Unit uses for, for two reasons, really. First of all, the UK's ethnic minorities include white ethnic minorities. And secondly... BAME highlights particular groups uh, while others are omitted, for example, the, the mixed ethnicity group. 
It's important, as you're suggesting, to explore disparities within ethnic groups, such as within the, the broad category of Asian. So people from the Indian group are five times as likely to be in the top income quartile compared with people from the Bangladeshi group. It's only by understanding these disparities within ethnic groups that the government and policymakers generally can develop effective targeted policies to reduce these disparities. And do you think that categories such as BAME, do they serve any purpose if what you're saying is that there are such disparities within these broad categories? Should they just be over time phased out as categories? I can only answer that from an analytical perspective, but analytically, BAME has very little use. Mm -hmm. We have almost no data on a website where the only classification is BAME. We have quite a lot that are split into the five main ethnic groups, Asian, Black, Mixed, White and other. But we certainly favour the the more detailed classification, which is 18 different groups, which is the one that's uh, used in the census. Is it possible that the categories, when they're too broad, can actually exacerbate problems or perpetuate inequalities? Well, they can mask inequalities and disparities. That's the problem with them from an analyst's perspective, that if you take a group like the Asian group, made up of the way we define it as Indian people and Chinese people, but also Pakistani and Bangladeshi people, then there's a danger that you you average over those different groups and end up with a figure that's essentially meaningless and might be quite similar to figures for other broad groups. But that would mask the fact that the Pakistani and Bangladeshi group, in the case of earnings, have particular challenges. So once they have the data, is there then the background work done to figure out why it is the way it is. So you've spoken a bit about Pakistani and Bangladeshi groups being disadvantaged on quite a few indicators. Does the IDU then, after getting that data together and putting it on that the website, is there work done then to try and uncover why this is happening? There's a certain amount, absolutely. We're still at relatively early days. The RDU and the, the website have been quite effective, but we are only a few years in to what we're envisaging is quite a long-term project to tackle some quite deep-rooted structural inequalities. But what we're doing is working with departments. So on a particular topic, the Cabinet Office itself might not have a direct locus, but the Department of Health or DWP or Housing and Communities, they will have more expertise. So we can work with them to say, we've looked at the data in detail, there appear to be disparities here, and then it's for the departments with subject matter topic expertise to explore that in more detail. One of the things which we argue in our report is that there should be more cross-departmental work in government to tackle some of these inequality areas. And the RDU seems like a good example of this in action. So can you talk a bit about how there can be better linkage of both data, but also just collaboration more broadly between government departments and agencies and services? And can you also talk a bit about some of the challenges within that? So in terms of collaboration, there's already a great deal. We work closely with people from a range of departments. Only this morning I was chairing a cross-government meeting of, of analysts who have got a remit relating to ethnicity. So we do work together closely. One of the challenges you mentioned there, though, which is interesting, is about linking data. And that's not straightforward. There was a piece of legislation passed a couple of years ago, the Digital Economy Act, And that's already been valuable in allowing departments to share data and information to support new research about society and the economy. 
So ONS published an article last year on young people's earnings progression and geographical mobility by a variety of characteristics, including ethnicity. But this has been difficult in the past until these legal gateways have, have come in. Different government departments have to have their own legal approvals to be able to share data. But DWP and ONS have agreed a way of sharing benefits and earnings data, for example, and to be able to link them to the census. Just a follow-up question, are there ever any restrictions in data protection law like the Data Protection Act or GDPR where actually it's difficult for a government department or agency to share with another government department or has is the data normally can be shared, it's not a legal issue? It invariably is a legal issue mm-hmm. in most cases when we're talking about low-level data. The key point is that when the data are shared and used for analysis, that's a recognised use of linked data under the under the legislation. And, of course, it's anonymised, so nobody else is able to work out who it is in the data. An analyst has got no interest in individuals' identities. Mm. And most of these linked data are only available in physically very uh, isolated premises so that only accredited researchers can access them. This anonymization of data, could that be the same with qualitative work and case studies, or is that different? Well, case studies often are anonymized. Clearly, people's real names aren't used, and that tends not to matter. And it's the underlying aspects of a case study that are most important. So names can be changed, geographies can be changed, even the immediate context, the number of children somebody has. They can all be changed without losing the impact of the case study itself. Okay, that's interesting. Um, With regards to the work that the IDU has done in, in linking and collating data, are there any learnings which could be used by other if there are new initiatives in future, new government initiatives or in local government to do similar work? Is there, is there a model that could be followed or any learnings? It's definitely a model that could be followed. I mean, this is an example of trying to develop data-informed, evidence-driven policymaking, and that applies in a whole range of different policy areas, bringing data together, making it accessible, not quite crowdsourcing policy, but uh, having a lot of people looking at the data and using that to generate consensus about ways forward in tackling whatever the policy issue is. So, yeah, the ethnicity facts and figures approach isn't the only way of using data and evidence to inform policy, but it appears to be a very successful one. Do you think that this approach could be applied to, say, LGBT facts and figures? Could that be something that's done in future? Because in in the report and the work we've done, we found that there is a gap in understanding the inequalities which people face because of their gender identity or sexual orientation. Is the idea of an LGBT facts and figures website possible? It's possible in many respects. It's not my area of expertise, but the main limitation that I'd envisage would be the availability of data. Well, about half the data we've got on the ethnicity website is drawn from government surveys and the other half is from administrative sources. Some of the surveys will ask about LGBT issues, but I doubt it's available particularly broadly from administrative sources. So there will be much less data available than we're blessed with in the world of ethnicity. So that could be a limitation. That makes sense. And um, with regards to looking forward, does the RDU have future plans for its work or the Ethnicity Facts and Figures website? And more broadly, how can work that's done today in collecting data and doing the analysis be future-proof so that it continues to be useful? 
Well, we're proposing to continue to add data to the website. So we've got a lot of data. We want to add more in areas where we think there are particular disparities or where we think there's a feasible policy response. But because we've got so much data, we also need to, to summarise it. Otherwise, people simply can't see the wood for the trees. So we are continuing to publish summary reports. And we also want to do some more detailed analysis to try to get below the surface of simply saying look, there's a disparity here, to be able to work with departments and academics to explain why disparities exist. In terms of future-proofing, I suppose the main thing is that you have data linkage mechanisms in place legally, we were talking about a minute ago, and a whole range of surveys being conducted. So that does provide data. Clearly, if interest arises in a new topic where data haven't been collected before, there's an onus on the statistical community to start to collect that information. And the census coming along in a couple of years' time will provide the richest source of data on a whole range of issues where there's a equality dimensions richer than any other source. Also, just for the benefit of the audience, what sorts of things do analysts like yourself get from the census? I mean, I'm assuming it's quite an exciting time when the, all the data is available. Yeah, that makes me sound like a geek, but it is an exciting time. <laughs> Well, the main thing it offers is that it's a snapshot of everybody in the country at one point in time, and it's got information about age, gender, ethnicity, education, and so on. So it's very rich in that sense, but the thing it offers over and above any other data source is that because the numbers being sampled, if you like, are so large, we can produce estimates for small geographical areas in a way that's simply not possible from sample surveys or most administrative sources. So we know within any part of the country there are differences, inequalities, if you like. The census allows us to explore that in, in much more detail than any other source. So that's the, the big advantage that I'm seeing from the next census. And how often are they done? They're typically done every 10 years. So this will be the first census which is sort of relevant for the Ethnicity Facts and Vigors website, or is up to date? It'll be the first census since the Ethnicity Facts and Figures website came along. We do have quite a bit of data currently on the website from the 2011 census, mm -hmm. which is useful as a benchmark, but of course is eight or nine years ago. It's, it's somewhat out of date. One aspect which we explored in our project was the notion of intersectionality and how the inequalities and disadvantages which very specific groups of people face can differ. So you have, for example, the inequalities faced by people from certain ethnic backgrounds, and then the inequalities faced by women as a whole. If you have women from those ethnic backgrounds, they have a different experience to just what someone from the ethnic background and a woman has put together. So it's an intersectional analysis. Is this something which the RDU looks at and works on? And what are the sort of challenges of, of working in this intersectional way? I completely agree with you about the importance of thinking about intersectionality as social groups like women, disabled people, ethnic groups. Of course, they're not homogenous and they can be experiencing different inequalities related to the different characteristics of their identity. So the biggest gap in employment between disabled men and women was in the combined Pakistani and Bangladeshi ethnic group where 60% of disabled men and 26% of disabled women were employed. And I suppose that highlights the fact that I referred to the combined Pakistani and Bangladeshi group highlights one of the main issues, that where you're interested simply in ethnicity, 
you have sample sizes of the size of each ethnic group where you split that sample size by gender and ethnicity you're in effect halving the sample size and when you're looking at ethnicity by gender by disability you again you're you're reducing the sample size available to you so analytically it makes it harder and harder to observe what's happening at the intersection between these different characteristics are you saying that as the group that you're analyzing gets smaller and smaller the sample sizes get smaller and then the data is either less reliable or just harder to ascertain in the first place? Yeah, typically it'll be just much less robust, and Mm -hmm. that's where the census will be manna from heaven for us because it will generate those sorts of sample sizes. And is the only way to have more robust data, to have bigger sample sizes, to invest more in this research? There's no kind of other silver bullets other than just putting more resources towards doing the research. Well, there is data linkage that can be, um, and it's a relatively new a new science, but that can be used to produce larger data sets, for example, by linking particular administrative sources to the census or by linking different censuses together. So that can be used to generate, as it were, larger samples. And you can also do modelling. You can use statistical techniques to produce more reliable estimates than from straightforward counts of, of people. Well, it's been really fascinating to talk to you today, Richard. And is there any, are there any final things you'd like to say about the work of the RDU or the work that you do? As a government statistician, it's wonderful to be working directly on something which is using data to inform policy to improve society. I couldn't wish for a better job. Well, that's really good to hear. And we hope that the work continues and more agencies and departments are inspired to do such work in different areas of inequality. So thank you very much for joining me today. It's been fascinating to speak with you and a real pleasure. Thanks, Ollie.